cleansing of the temple as the chronology is followed in John he lays forth everything and the way it's laid out it looks like that this one that we've been looking at of course is, happens at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and the other one that was spoken of and written about in the synoptic gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke and John I mean Luke Matthew, Mark and Luke um, would ha- happen at the uh, at the very end of his public ministry just before days before his crucifixion and um there are some, however, that believe that this was just put in there um, and records the same event. But there's so much said about them in one that is not said in the other. And the consistency with the synoptic accounts and the way this is laid out it seems to be in order chronologically. I'm just convinced that this, this is uh, the first of two cleansings of the temple. And we made the case that if you look at it from um, a high view, way above the text, that this once again for Jesus is a preview of coming attractions. And that is that these two cleansings are pictures of an ultimate cleansing that will take place when He comes again in His second coming. And we have to keep that in mind when we look at Christ in the Gospels and see especially in his dealings with the Jewish people that he's making an offer of the kingdom to them in his first coming knowing sovereignly that they're going to reject that offer and that uh, things that are done in his first coming are foretastes of what will happen when he comes again Um, and this cleansing of the temple is a, a, a prominent uh, foretaste, a foreshadowing of what he will do when he comes back to earth and rules and reigns from Jerusalem, and uh, and repentance is granted by Jesus uh, to his his chosen nation, the, the, the Israel, the Jews, and that's spoken of, of course, in Romans chapter eleven. But here we have a a cleansing that's pointing to there's a it's almost like a near and long term fulfillment as we've seen throughout the scripture and there's a pattern in scripture for that that something could be prophesied and then fulfilled in the short term with a long uh, a longer term ultimate fulfilling and this cleansing is a good example of that and we remember that we're looking at it from the standpoint of Jesus when he's in there in the temple and he's enraged and rightly so because they're exploiting the people and they're pilfering off of them and extorting money from them by charging them exorbitant prices to sell sacrificial animals to them so they can make their sacrifice and also uh, to um, the exchange rates they charge to exchange the money in the temple so that they could pay their temple tax and they were exploiting the people and what began to be an accommodation uh, a service really a legitimate service offered to people for their sacrifices and for paying the temple tax uh, through the corrupt priesthood that existed at this time became uh, a money making scam and uh, they were lining their pockets and Jesus goes in there and the context for him is this here you are in this place where people are to have an opportunity to connect with God and worship and 
and uh, commune with Him, you're using religion in order to extort money from them and slapping my name on it when I'm going to come into this temple, clean it, and then turn around and die for the people to be able to worship God. So you're pilfering off of this to line your pockets, but I'm going to pay for this worship. Uh, and I'm going to reconcile these people to, to God, to the Father. And I'm going to do it with my own life. And he was offended. And rightly so. The rage he had here was his alone. No one else could be that enraged over this because no one else could pay that price. And no one else was going to pay that price and no one else did pay that price. If they tried to, even, it wouldn't be accepted. There's only the blood of Jesus Christ that can cleanse from sin. Period. Not only did He die for our sins, He was the only one who was qualified to die for our sins because He was the only one who was worthy. And so, in that context, and here it is, Passover time, we can only imagine the rage, the righteous indignation He had over this. God is a just God. And the Bible says in Jeremiah 10.10, at His wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure His indignation. And um, so He's given us a preview of what He's going to do one day when He does come down and cleanse the temple and cleanse the priesthood. And then the week, so that was the first week, and then last week we looked, and you could take this zeal that's spoken of Him. If you remember in verse 17, the disciples remembered by the power of the Holy Spirit that this was said of Him. In the Messianic Psalm, that is Psalm 69, that zeal for your house has eaten me up. And they realized that that was said of him concerning him, concerning this moment. This action goes back to what was said that he would be like. And that zeal for the worship of the Father in spirit and in truth, to purchase people and buy them with his blood, he wanted the Father glorified. And he was willing to lay down and did his life on the cross so that he would be glorified. And was joyful over doing it. That's his zeal for the Father. And that zeal, that kind of zeal in your mind always manifests itself in action. And it did. And so they could recall back and say, well, this makes sense now. And the Holy Spirit gave them that kind of recall to go back to the Scriptures and say, well, this is <clears throat> what's going on here. So we last week we took that zeal and we took the first time that zeal is mentioned in the Bible and it goes all the way back to Numbers 25 and we looked at what happened in Numbers 25 and that's when the grandson of uh, Levi, um, the, um, uh, took a javelin and ran through um, an Israelite man who was with a Moabite woman in front of the temple committing sexual immorality and ran through them his zeal for the worship of God. They came off of the hills of the council of Balaam, you'll remember, who told the Moabite king, you can't get God to curse these people because he won't do that. But here's how you can do it. You can take them out by offending him, by having them commingle with your pagan women. And in so doing so, they will corrupt worship. They will not worship Him. And it will bring His judgment. Sure enough, it did. And that judgment was stopped. It was stayed through the zeal of that, that priest, that grandson. 
And when he did that, the judgment stopped. And you trace that zeal and it runs all the way into the temple when Jesus comes and establishes His kingdom on earth. That that zeal is commended and honored in that temple worship because He and His order will be serving Jesus Christ Himself in an earthly temple that is to come. That's spoken of at the end of Ezekiel. And that service, that zeal, was rewarded. And we, we talk about the evangelism enterprise and we, we understand that our evangelistic zeal burns within us because we believe and we want God to be worshipped. We want to recruit worshipers. Because absent knowing Him, you can't worship Him. He's worshipped only in spirit and in truth. And so when we share the Gospel, God deserves... The Father deserves to be worshipped. The Son deserves those that He bought and paid for with His blood. He deserves that. And the Son is going to take... That's a loved gift from the Father to the Son is the bride, the church. I love you so much, Son. And the, bride, and the, and the Son says, I'll pay for them and redeem them, cleanse them. And the Father says, and I will give them to you as a love gift. So the church, we who make up the church, imagine that, are a gift purchased by Jesus as He offers us His gift of salvation paid for by Him. And we're a part of a gift that Father is going to offer to the Son to honor the sacrifice that He paid in honor of the Father to be worshipped. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's an exceedingly beautiful thing. And they're corrupting all of this. Someone challenged me the other day. There's a major corporation in this country that made an incredible compromise. Incredible compromise. And this corporation is out loud about their Christian faith. And uh, and I, I just personally won't do business with them anymore. And someone com- commented the other day and said, well, other other companies that do the same thing compromise. And I said, but this, let me tell you what the difference is. I expect those companies to do that because they don't claim Christian faith. But when you claim Christian faith, there comes an expectation of living it out. That's far worse. Pagans act like pagans. But when professing Christians act like pagans, there's your problem. And that's what he's dealing with here. He's dealing with rank and file hypocrisy. If you go through the Scriptures and it does not take a studious, detailed study of Scripture to come to this conclusion, especially in the ministry of Jesus... What what drew his ire was not people who were openly pagan and lost in their sin and ungodly and made no claims to be anything but. What drew his ire was hypocrisy. The scribes and the Pharisees and the priests in the temple organized around hypocrisy. They lived off their hypocrisy. It was their living. It was their livelihood. They had a religious system of hypocrisy claiming to represent Him, but they were anything but. And that drew His ire. Read what He has to say in the Scriptures. It's a cursory glance of what Jesus had to say about hypocrisy and hypocrites. And you'll realize there's where His anger was leveled. 
ours should be the same. So we're talking about practical now today. We looked up, we've looked in, and now we're going to look out. How does that? How does? What are some things that we can live from this? And there are three or four that I'd like to share this morning. Without before we move on from this event, let's read it first, and then let's go into as many as we can. There's actually four of them I wanted to highlight. I don't think we'll be able to get to all four of them today. John chapter 2, verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And He found at the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. And when He had made a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And He said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make My Father's house a house of merchandise. In our terms today, it's almost like we could look at it and say, do not make my house a flea market. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Then the Jews said it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But He was speaking of the temple of His body. Therefore, when He had risen from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this to them. And they believed the Scriptures and the Word which Jesus had said. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we have just heard from You. Not through me, (coughs) but through Your Word. It is alive. These are not recorded, idle words that just sit on a page for us to lift habitually or even every now and then, we receive this, that this is God-breathed. It is living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to divide the issues between the joints and the marrow to give clarity where there's nothing but confusion and to give power where there's nothing but powerlessness. This Word is alive. And I pray, Lord, that You will apply it to my life and all the rest of us today. We are not interested in just being informed. But Your Word informs so that it may transform. And our minds be renewed so that we as Christians would be called to the altar of living sacrifice and that the so the lost may be saved. Whatever you plan, you send out your word, and it's tailor-made. That's how, that's how powerful and utterly genius you are. That whatever is in the need of the hearers, that need will be met this morning. The issue is whether or not we've got ears to hear. So, Father, I pray that you will give us that. Till up the soil of our hearts. Turn it and make it rich so that the word falls down deep in the very soul so that we grow, we grow strong roots downward, so that we might bear fruit upward to your glory. In the sweet name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This zeal that is now ours as blood-bought saints, the zeal that God be known, the zeal that He be declared, the zeal that there's repentance and faith, the zeal that He be worshipped, the zeal that He be spoken of accurately, And we talked about that, of how it bothers us to no end when we hear God spoken of erroneously. 
the gospel spoken of erroneously? We are uptight about that. David said, I hate every false way. Hate it in Psalm 119. And that's not the only spot where that's said. And so we have that zeal that God be worshipped in spirit and in truth. As worshipers, that's what we desire. For He deserves it. Who deserves the glory but Him? But the condition of the priest was not such so, such as that. The priesthood, like we talked about, was corrupted. And I want us to look at that and examine that by contrasting the priest with the disciples. Okay? Let's first look at the priests. Okay? He goes in there and he makes a whip of cords and he does what he does in righteous indignation. That's an appropriate way to characterize this. He comes in there and it is no small stir in the temple. We can imagine. I mean, it upset everything. And this place would have been teeming with people because remember the context. It's Passover time. That makes his offense at this all the more understandable. Because Passover time is the time to celebrate what? Blood redemption. His blood. So he walks in, he goes in there, he stirs up the place, and guess what they do? They stand down. Think about that for a minute. There's temple police available at their beck and call. There's a Roman garrison just over the hill from them, able at their beck and call to stop any kind of disruptions with these religious nuts. That's the way the Romans thought of them these people who were a thorn in their side. They were put there just to keep peace and keep things calm. Well, this uproar and stir takes place, and what do they all do? They all stand down. Remarkable, isn't it? That in and of itself is a sign that one man could walk in there and with such authority do what he did and get away with it. Anybody else would have been seized. Obviously, he went in there, and there was a supernatural there was already endowed authority, but it was manifest in the moment. And everybody who wanted to do something about it, God stayed their hand. And so they're like, okay, we need a sign. Why did they need a sign? Well, later we find out that the second time this happened, they asked Him about His authority to do it. Why did they ask about His authority? Because He did it authoritatively. That's why they stood down. There was a supernatural presence there that stayed them. And they're like, why is nobody doing anything about this? Everybody's thinking that. It's kind of like being in a classroom and you have a question to ask the professor and you're afraid to ask it. And then somebody has the courage to ask the question and everybody goes, I'm glad they asked that question because I had the same one. They're all going, why didn't anybody do anything about this? Maybe I ought to do anything about it, but nobody else will do anything about it. Stay hand is stayed. That would be enough to make them pause and reflect. But I want you to look at the contrast between the disciples and between the religious leadership, the corrupt priesthood. Here's the deal. In order to do that, we've got to go back to the Old Testament. We go back to God's last authoritative word to these people, prophetic word to these people. We have it in Nehemiah and we also have it in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, right? And between that, there's 400 years of silence. There's no revelation for God for 400 years. Now, what was the spiritual condition of the 
of the nation of Israel and the priesthood in particular that shut down the voice of God. What was it? What was their what was their spiritual condition so that they didn't get another word from him? Three main things in the book of Malachi. Three. Now you go back and read Malachi, uh, and I encourage you to do so. <coughs> it's not a long book in the Bible, but go back and read it. But there are three things that are going on. Uh, listen. The priesthood was defiled, obviously. The priests had abandoned God's Word for their own opinion. They gave lip service to the Word. They were not keepers of the Word. They didn't keep the law. And that means they weren't stewards over it. They had drifted away from it. And that's recorded in Malachi 1.6 through Malachi 2.9. Then marriage was corrupted during Malachi's time in two ways. Divorce. And the Bible says in Malachi, you'll remember in that famous verse in Malachi 2 that God hates divorce. But it also says, before it says that, that marriage is an institution that God loves. Before he says he hates divorce, he says he loves marriage. It actually says that. That marriage is an institution that God loves. If marriage is an institution that God loves, and it is, it would be an institution that the devil and the world and the flesh hate. Wouldn't it? So the efforts to redefine it are not efforts to expand marital opportunity. The efforts to redefine it is to destroy marriage. Because if it's not defined the way the Bible defines it, then it's anybody's guess as to what it would be. And if it's not that, then it's nothing. It was corrupted because they were treating their wives treacherously. Exploiting them. Treating them less like the gift that God they are to the husband. Dealing treacherously to the point of violence. The Bible calls divorce violence. Did you know that? You know why? Because it's like taking somebody and separating them like that. It would be like taking a human being and grabbing one arm and somebody else grabbing the other, two strong people, and just ripping them apart. That's how God sees divorce. And if that's the way God sees divorce, that's the way divorce is. God doesn't have perspective. He doesn't have a certain way of viewing things. The way God sees something is the way it is. That was what was going on. And then they were robbing God. They were robbing God of tithes and offerings. And there's a record of that in Malachi chapter 3 verses 8 through 12. So I'm just going to summarize that, but that's what was going on. Not only, by the way, were they defiling marriage by divorce and treacherously dealing with their wives, but they were also defiling marriage by marrying non-believers. And it was causing the pagan worshipers that they were getting linked to. You know what winds up happening. In that kind of arrangement, does the pagan embrace Christianity? Or does Christianity embrace the paganism? You know the answer to that. So the kingdom, God's promises to them have been forfeited because they're turning away. He still offers. He's still got an outstretched arm. That's the way God is. He's merciful and kind. If you want an example of God's patience and kindness, look in the mirror. And I mean that for me too. 
So, they're robbing God. When you rob God in marital unfaithfulness, which could also be carried out in the New Testament vernacular to spiritual idolatry. Spiritual idolatry. Linking up with the world and the spirit of the age and what everybody else is doing and whatever is popular. And, the, and, and to just kind of riding the tide so that you don't come against it and you maintain and court the favor of others. Things like that. Denying the cross and the reason for it. Looking over the need for somebody to repent and believe. And just say, oh, just believe. No need for repentance. You're not that bad after all. Getting caught up in the spirit of the age. Spiritual adultery. That was going on at this time. So, it's not hard to imagine that these priests would be pilfering off the people. Because they're already robbing God. And if it's not a very far step, if you're going to rob God, to rob His people. But what price paid for that? What price paid for that? Think about this for a minute. 400 years of not a word. 400 years of not a word. You know, there's a promise that I latch on to and we won't go there, but you're familiar with it in James chapter 1. I draw upon this all the time. I dare say if somebody asks me, Brother Lindsay, how can I pray for you? I will usually say this. And I mean it. It's the first thing that comes to my mind. Pray for wisdom. Pray that God will give me that I have wisdom from God. Right? Because the Bible says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and He'll give it to him liberally. I mean amply. I mean in abundance, the Scripture says. But, but, let him ask in faith. Because of what? A double-minded man cannot receive anything from God. This was double-mindedness on steroids. we got to pick a team. What kingdom are we living for? Because what kingdom we're living for is the king we're living for who reigns over that kingdom. The Bible says that a perverse person is an abomination to the Lord. But to the man who walks uprightly, God gives his secret counsel. The Bible says, based on these mercies in the first 11 chapters of Romans, based on those mercies, I urge you to offer up your body as a living sacrifice. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's the fruit of surrender, not the root. We treat the Lord like, Lord, if you'll tell me what to do, then I'll consider it. And the way God works is, Lord, before you ever tell me what to do, the answer is yes. And then He says, okay, I'll tell you. They couldn't hear from God. They're robbing God. They're treating their wives, and by extension, spiritual adultery is occurring. The priesthood is defiled. They've drifted away from God's Word. And guess what they get from God? Nothing. They're not hearing. 
That's why they need a sign. Because the Word's not there to anchor them. i got to have a sign. Give me a sign. Give me a sign, the cry goes. From the cross. At the base of the cross. If you'll just get off of there, that'll just prove. We'll believe if you'll get off the cross. And I go, wait a minute now, let's examine this. Cleansing the temple, turning water into wine, healing withered hands, raising people from the dead, raising Lazarus from the dead, just a few days ago, didn't do it. So, you're telling me that if I come off this cross, you'll now believe. So ask for a sign. Look at the contrast between the Pharisees who hear nothing and are getting nothing from God, and yet they're God's representatives. The high priest. And they're representing God while stealing from Him. They get nothing from Him. I'm going to speculate. I'm just going to use a little bit of imagination. So forgive me if I offer it as a disclaimer and tell you that this is my imagination. Then don't get mad at me for expressing it, if you will. Let's do the parentheses. I imagine this. What if these guys had hearing hearts like the disciples? What if? What if they had hearing hearts like the disciples? Follow me now. And they stand down. They see this going on. And they look at the temple police. The MPs are over there. They look at the Roman garrison who's just over the hill and they're standing there poised and ready to put an end to this very quickly. And Jesus has time to go through the whole temple and not a person credibly challenges Him. Think about that. Don't lose that. He didn't come in there with pomp and circumstance. He didn't come in there with a crown. Nobody nobody drove up in a limousine with secret service when He walked in that temple. He walks in there with a bunch of impoverished fishermen who is he to do something like this? But yet he commands that place. And they stand down. That should be enough of a sign. But couldn't you think, would there be a Pharisee among them? Would there be a chief priest among them? Would there be one among them that would do like the disciples did and were so full of the Word and so looking for the coming of the Messiah, the biblical Messiah, that they would have stood down and one of them, at least one, it could have been said in here. My imagination. Oh. Oh. I remember. I remember what it says in Malachi. Go look at it. Malachi chapter 3. Join with me. Okay. Malachi chapter 3. Again, I'm just speculating here. But go with me Malachi. Just giving it an example. Okay. What if one of them would have said, wait a minute. And they're pausing and we're thinking, I, you know what? Nicodemus might have been doing that. Because later on, he comes to investigate the claims of Christ and his identity. He might have been. He was teetering. He was a little bit at least open. Had a hearing heart. But what if one of them, like the disciples did, here's the contrast, like the disciples did. The disciples were common men. They weren't biblical scholars in the sense that these guys were. They weren't looked to by anybody to teach the Word. But yet, the Holy Spirit reveals to them that this is exactly what was prophesied in Psalm 69. And they remember because they're in the Word. And they have hearing hearts. And they remember and go, that's the fulfillment of Psalm 69. If there would have been a priest among them like that, and I'm not saying there wasn't, but if there would have, he could have done the same thing about Malachi chapter 3. 
I remember what it says. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, speaking of John the Baptist. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, said the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. What if? What if there was a priest among them who had a hearing heart and did the same thing that the disciples did and say, that's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. Somebody biblically processing the moment looking through the lens of Scripture because they're in Scripture and they're looking for Him and they go, suddenly He appears. He stands here and nobody's, everybody stands down. And what does He come for? To cleanse this priesthood. And I stand in need of cleansing. What if one of them would have stood up among them and stepped forward and said, Lord, cleanse me! But they didn't because of their spiritual deafness. It is remarkable. It is remarkable. The testimony of Solomon. When God said to him, you can ask me anything. Here's a blank check. Ask me anything. I'll give it to you. He's about to lead His covenant people. What a remarkable request God made. You know, we talk, I mean, He made of God. We talk about there are two renderings of that, you realize. One of them is in Chronicles and one of them is in Kings, right? And we talk about the fact that God gave Solomon wisdom because he asked for wisdom. And that's one of the renderings. He did ask for wisdom. But in the other rendering, you know what he asked for? God, give me a hearing heart. Give me <clears throat> a heart that can hear from you. Because I'm about to lead these people and I don't have a clue on how to do it. And these are your people. I have been given a responsibility that is way over my head. But I believe you. And I believe that you appointed me to this. And if you appointed me to this, if I ask you, you'll empower me. And he asked for a hearing heart. That's what he asked for. Dear ones, that's the greatest thing arguably you could ask from God is a hearing heart. God, give me a hearing heart. The heart of the matter is the heart of the matter. Is it not? The parable of the souls is set forth for us. And it says, here's the issue. In witnessing settings, I've often gone to people, spoken the gospel to them, and had no response of faith and I say, you know what? I just dare you to do this. Take the parable of souls and honestly honestly look at it and just ask which one describes you. Because there's four. And you're one of four. And the Bible says that the desires for pleasure, the cares of this life, and the desires of riches choke the Word and it becomes unfruitful. Fruitlessness in places where God expects fruit 
anchors him. Fig tree? That fig tree has no fruit on it. What that fig tree represent? Israel. Has no fruit on it. He cursed it. I plowed this vineyard. I purchased this vineyard. I gave you the choices of buying. I gave you everything you need for fruitfulness. And what did you do? When I sent my representatives come harvest time, you killed every one of them. And then I sent my son. I say, well, they won't. They'll have respect for him because they respect me enough to respect him. What did they do to him? They killed him. We as Christians, it's amazing to me how we fall, we fall prey so often to every kind of notion that is as unbiblical as it could possibly be. Just because it sounds biblical or maybe just because it sounds reasonable or, or because it came from a certain voice, we, we assign it credibility just because it came from a certain voice. This is it right here. And we got to have ears to hear. These people didn't have ears to hear, but the disciples did. The disciples had ears to hear. Praise their name. Praise God's name. These weren't biblical scholars. Aren't you impressed with God that they would look at that event and they're just now following Him now. This is new. This is early stages. They see what's going on and their question is, or their response is, that's scriptural. But the guys who were supposed to be biblically in tune and the spiritual scholars said, give us a sign. Add something to it. What did Jesus say about that kind of foolishness? A wicked and evil and perverse generation asks for a sign. Spiritual deafness is a dangerous thing. We ask God, when I pray and ask God to till up the soil of a heart, and till up the soil of my heart, that's what we're really asking for. God, would you give us a heart that's so palatable, so usable by you, that the Word, when it falls in there, doesn't encounter resistance. Whether I like it or not. That's not the issue. It doesn't matter what I think. But I receive it as a welcome friend. Well, wait a minute now. Pragmatism says this. The culture says this. So-and-so says this. And you go, well, wait a minute now. It's what the Lord says that what matters. We feed on His faithfulness. They had the Word, and the Word seemed to be enough for them. That's the way it is with a real believer. The Word is enough. The Word is enough for a genuine believer. I don't need more. But Jesus turned around to him and said, well, I can tell you this. I'll give you one. I'll give you a sign. You know, did the Lord did say that in the last days, men will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. The Bible says in the last days, that's going to be prominent. And we're in the last days. And it shuts down the voice of God. Why? Because no man can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one or love the other. And you cannot serve God and primary competitor for lordship of Jesus in the life of a person is money. Not just the possession of money. You could be covetous and 
idolatrous in money and not have a red cent because you're covetous over what you want and you can be covetous about what you have and idolatrous money is an assigned value worship is assigned value and Jesus says make your choice you worship riches or earth or me and, and your Lord who bought and purchased you these guys chose money they couldn't hear God because of it the disciples spiritually impoverished and literally impoverished again we're not exalting poverty but the reality was there wasn't a rich one among them but here's the truth about them and you know I've quoted this to you before but I like for you if you don't mind if you just indulge here um I think it, I think it would be helpful. To look at it, but I want you to. I want you and I um, to focus in on something here, and I got to find it in the rendering that I need it in, or that I think it's best said in. Hang on just a second. They couldn't hear from God. The disciples heard from God. They were connected with everything that was going on. They knew exactly they could assess things and their belief was deepened in this in this enterprise. It was strengthened. Oh, I can't find it right now. But forgive me for that. I was just going to quote it. I wanted you to see it. You can look it up. Maybe somebody can see it in the next few minutes. Jesus was asked and they were trying to trip Him up. And they were asking about um, what's the greatest commandment. You remember that? He said, I'll tell you what it is. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And the second one is like it. I mean, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. The second one's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and prophets. So they get through their foolishness trying to trip him up. And he says, well, let me ask you a question. He said, um, um, how is it? Uh, who is... Um, Whose son is you believe in the Messiah? Whose son is he? Be the son of David. Okay. How is it then that David in Psalm 110 said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? How is it that he can call him son and he be his father at the same time? I mean, his descendant. So, how is it that David could say, and it can be said of the Messiah that he's the son of David, but yet David called him Lord? God. How is that? Well, the only answer to that question is the incarnation. That God was going to become a man and I'm standing in front of you. And there's this one line in there that's so telling and that's what I was hoping wanted to just make a comment here. It, it is uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 35. Go, go there with me, will you? Mark chapter 12, verse 35. I knew it was in Mark, but I was trying to... Mark 12.35, then Jesus answered. Are you all there? I'll underline this part of it that I want to focus on this morning. Then Jesus answered and said while He taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, 
the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is it that he's his son? What's the answer to that question? God, David's Lord, became a man, David's descendant. He's revealing himself to them. And here's the line. I underline this because this offered me so it so encourages me. That went right over the religious people's heads. Just like that. But look what it says right here. And the common people heard him gladly. The common people heard him gladly. Okay, so he cleanses the temple. That action is spoken of and prophesied in Malachi chapter 3. And with the religious people, don't even get Psalm 69 say nothing say, to say nothing of Malachi chapter 3. Miss it all together and ask for a sign. And the disciples, common folk, hear that and they go, that's the fulfillment of Psalm 69. That's the Messiah. That strengthened their belief. They'd already believed after the miracle in Cana, it says. But then their belief keeps deepening through the whole thing. It just keeps, you see it happen. There are interim places where that happens and it's strengthened because they've got ears to hear. Oh, that God would give us ears to hear. Oh, that we would bother to hear. And when we hear, that we give ears to hear. That's the problem here. They don't have ears to hear. And they can't recognize it because their hearts have become so dull-hearted. And they did that in the name of Jesus. Did that in the name of Jesus, the very one who's standing in front of him, and missed him by an eternal country mile. What a tragedy! What a tragedy! It is an act of grace to know and believe anything revealed to us by God. That's act of grace. We can't even take credit for that. But we should be eternally grateful for it. And use as an impetus to hear and understand and comprehend more. That's the first point. Riches. We got four. So we got three more to go. We're not going to go there yet. Let's, let's, let's ask the Lord. Line me up, Lord. Line me up with Solomon. Give me a hearing heart. Give me a heart that hears from you. And a heart that's that can hear from God comes off of the heels of a heart that's surrendered to God. And that we don't just take what He says and say, God, if you'll just show me or you'll tell me, I'll consider it. Whereas the Christian biblical pattern is God, the answer is yes, no matter what you say. I've been bought with a price. I don't own myself anymore. I don't own my choices. I don't own my pocketbook. I don't own my influence. I don't own my wife. I don't own my family. 
I don't own my house. I don't own my car. I own nothing. You can't steal anything from me because I don't own anything. That's the epicenter of sanctification. You know what we say? We used to teach a crown ministry. I got some books up there from it. Biblical. What the Bible has to say about handling money. And we got into budgeting and all the kind of things and tried to help folks be better stewards. And in that teaching, I love the way it was laid out. And I saw, and still to this day, hear from people that I'm still in a relationship with that fruit from that study. And that was 20 years ago. Or so. God's Word. And this was the first principle. Matter of fact, one of them that was in here stead from this pulpit, just this very thing. Revolutionary <laughs> to learn this one thing. God owns it all. So we get the roles right. Owner, steward. Starting place. Starting place. Let me ask you this. Is that just true of money? It's not, is it? If you're a Christian, that's true of everything about you. God owns all of me. I was purchased on the cross. I am not my own. It is now my privilege to glorify Him in my body and in my spirit, which are His. That's zeal. Because guess where the modern day temple is? Did you know with the new heavens and new earth come down? In Revelation? We just got through not long ago. Well, it has been a long time ago. Studying Revelation. When that final, eternal glory that we participate in, you know what the Bible says about it? There will be no temple there. Why? Because God will be there. and He's the temple. And until then, where is this temple now? In me. I'm the temple. And He resides in me. You're the temple. He resides in you. And He wants to do some cleaning. I'm convinced. I know He wants to do it with me. I know that. I know that. This is as practical as it can be. God, cleanse me. Start with me. That is one of the graces of the Lord's Supper. And one of the reasons why we moved it to every week. And I'm not trying to be super spiritual and say, we do it every week. And other... Churches do it quarterly. So we're more godly. Fooey. But here's what I would say. If every time you do this, you are remembering my death until I come, how often do you want to be guilty of doing that? Every Sunday for me. Do this in remembrance of me. Implication? It's your tendency to forget. I told you the other day, I've got a book in my book collection. 
and it's called Christless Christianity. And it talks about how in the professing church Jesus is being marginalized out of His church. Almost like the church in Laodicea, Ryan. Remember that? He said, I'm knocking. We use that as an evangelistic verse. But that's not an evangelistic verse. That's Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock of my church to get back in. And if you'll let me in, I'll sup with you. And be. So we're in Laodicea in so many ways. He's, he's, he's smarter than I'll ever be. But if I were called upon to write a book like that, you know what I would write? I wouldn't call it Christless. I would call it crossless. Crossless Christianity. And crossless Christianity is no Christianity at all. Spoken of by Christ and spoken about Him, a lot of people <laughs> speak about Him. Everybody believes in Him. They do. They know He came. Don't play games. But calling Him Lord and submitting to Him, it's another matter. Humbling yourself before Him as your only hope because of our sorry, nasty pride and the sin that He died for on that cross. It's crossless Christianity is our problem. We should be boasting in nothing else. Moreover, it is a call to personal sanctification. It is. We end the service, and this is the end of nothing, it's the beginning. But we end the service with the Lord's Supper, and it's a call for examination. It is to say, Lord, first of all, we have a relationship with you. Have I repented and put faith in your Son and Him alone is my salvation? But also, Lord, now if I am in relationship with you, am I in fellowship with you? Am I living in known unrepentant sin and rebellion against you? You bought me. I ask a guy who professed to be a Christian, And I said, let me ask you a question. He was in immorality. I said, every time you get ready to commit sexual immorality, do you pray and ask God to bless it? I mean, after all, He's there with you. If you, if you know Him, you're bringing Him into that. That's what you're doing. Or when you flick the computer button, and those eyes that belong to Him now, you cool with that? Am I cool with that? Not to, not to make him think more of me, not to not to earn favor with him, but because I have favor with him, because he purchased me with his blood. I am captivated by his love. The sin against love is the worst one of all. I, when we deeply love somebody, we all sin against him. But is not the Lord's Supper a call by God? He says, examine yourself. Is there anything that you're bringing me into? Because I'm with you. I'm, I'm living inside you. Let me cleanse you. Not positionally. That's done already. But practically. I'm in need of practical cleansing every single day. And so are you. And don't we want to be sensitive because if we drowned out something that He says to us, our hearts become a little bit harder in the hearing. And then the wax starts to accumulate. 
Before long, we're in the spiritual idolatry that was present at the time He went in there and brought His judgment. How glorious it is to think. How glorious it is to think that for a blood-bought believer with any kind of sin in my life, all I have to do is confess to Him, admit to it, turn to Him, and He'll forgive me and restore me in fellowship like that. I don't have to wait on a probationary period. That's how we do sometimes. We forgive people, but we have to go through a probationary period. They have to prove it out. or We'll say, well, let's see. No, not with God. It doesn't mean that we exploit that and go out and just start repeating it with casual indifference about how He feels about it. Of nothing, Anybody that sees grace that way has never experienced it. I'm convinced of that. No, the grace is motivation for holy living because we're so grateful to be forgiven. And every week, at least during this, collectively, we've given this opportunity. Remember the cross for you and participate in the work of the cross in you. And if I do it in you, I'll do it through you. And my life will live through you. And I'll put it on display. We didn't get the chance to get to this, but this took place in the court of the Gentiles. And the Lord said, This light that I set this place to be, to shine from here and beyond, is a polluted well. Let's ask God to cleanse us. If we're not willing to do that, don't take the cup and the bread. But I implore you, that need not be right where we're sitting. Right here. Lord God cleanse this temple. This is the temple. If He lives inside you, and He does live inside you if you're a Christian, the only type of people He doesn't live inside are non-Christians. But if you're a Christian, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're none of His. But if you are a Christian, He lives inside you. He lives inside me. And I'm in need of cleansing. And so we're going to ask the Lord to unpack that and reveal that to us as we take the Lord's Supper. And we're going to celebrate. This is a celebratory table to remember His death until He comes. The price that we were purchased by, we stand in need of being reminded of that, don't we? We all, at some level or another, are guilty of underappreciating that. I don't think you could ever adequately appreciate it. But let's give it a shot. Let's try it. Let's try it. And let's do it right now. Let's pray. Will you join with me?